Good morning. Do um, keep your Bibles open. It's been more of a paper chase than I'd prefer um, this morning as we're trying to get an overview of creation from the Scriptures and what it is that the Lord says about this physical world and what it is and what it's going to be. So do um, bear with me as we rattle our way through various passages. Um, they will be Most of them will be on the screen as well if you're slow in finding. But um, uh, Langs has prayed, so let's begin. Um, somewhere in the, in the late 80s, what does that make it, 30-odd 30, 30 years ago, my, my dad became a Christian. It was, a, it was an extraordinary story of pretty un-extraordinary people. Um, it was a very normal Christian family who, who crossed paths with my folks, um, first meeting actually at the John Radcliffe, and then they invited them along to church, and over a period of time my folks heard and saw the gospel being lived out and spoken of. They were able to talk about questions they had and that kind of thing. Um, they, they trusted the Lord Jesus. They were baptized then as, as adults, um, early 40s or so. And, and slowly it began to transform the priorities for their lives, their values and attitudes, what they would spend their money on, what was important to them, what their home life would be like, all kinds of things. But one thing that didn't change was their attitude to the environment, to creation. Um, especially for my dad. He came at things from the other side. Rather than as a Christian asking, should Christians care about the environment? Should Christians be green? The kind of questions we're going to be thinking about today. Um, he came as somebody who was already green, uh, before it was trendy, and trying to work out what a newfound Christian faith meant. He was an undergraduate and then did a DPhil at Oxford. He you can find his, his work, if you like, on, on Lycan. Um, if you go and look in Wolfson College Library, I think it's still there. I'm not sure you'd want to bother. Um, <laughs> he, then, he then took on the job as um, kind of park ranger at Shotover, over in Brazenose Woods, over if you know. Um, that was where I sort of grew up much of my childhood. But it was only then that he became a Christian. And so with this newfound faith, as he began to read his Bible... He was increasingly convinced that he ought to be caring about the world, about creation. But that was, he found, against much of the sort of popular Christian thinking of the time. It came up against a lot of suspicion. Dad believes that the natural stance of the Christian towards the environment ought not to be one of indifference or, or even opposition, but rather we should appreciate the world around us. We should live as stewards. Now, as many of you know, he died a few years ago. And so what we're going to be doing this morning, basically, is trying to work out whether he was right or not. Make no doubt, this is a hot topic. This is the kind of thing that matters to people, perhaps particularly in East Oxford, whom we rub, rub shoulders with day by day, week by week. At least they say it matters, or we say it matters, until we have to sort out our rubbish into different coloured bins, and then we can't be bothered, but... So what I want us to begin to do, though, is to try and get a framework. I'm not sure I've got many answers for you, but I'd like to help us establish a framework for thinking about these things this morning. So what we'll do is we'll give an initial overview and a reminder. If you're here as a guest or a visitor or you've missed previous sermons, I'll try and justify and explain some of what we've been doing. Then I want us to have a think about, if you like, some historical and societal responses to green issues. Um, recycling the environment, that kind of stuff. 
Maybe particularly as we're thinking as Christians why there's been some suspicion or pushback on these things. And then we'll open the Bible and it will be, um, I'm being a little optimistic, but essentially an overview of all of Scripture, (laughs) whether these things matter, how much they matter, that sort of stuff. Um, Even before we jump in, I want to say there are three things I'm not going to do that I'd love to have been able to do um, in this time. I'm not going to touch on a social justice aspect. That is, more often than not, it's the marginalised who suffer when the environment is abused. Should we care about green issues for the marginalised? Possibly, yes. But I'm not going to talk about that. The second thing I'm not going to comment on is whether we should care about the environment as an opportunity to be seen to do good as we seek to witness to people around us in a sort of 1 Peter 2 type thing to do, live such good lives among the pagans. I'm not going to talk about that either, but perhaps we should. The other thing I'm not going to talk about is the specifics of application. So my hope as we leave this building this morning is not that we're all going to go and get an allotment or... Uh, use washable nappies or drive Toyotas or intently watch our carbon footprints. Because it's very easy. We love to sort of construct laws and to be told what to do and told how to live and those sorts of things. But I think they can be unhelpful and divisive. And rather, I want to shape people's thinking and principles and we can come together asking the Lord for wisdom to how these things might work out as individuals and as a church. So that's all preamble. What are we doing in this series? Um, I take it as as believers, we want to be those who live joined up lives. We want to be those who who worship him with all that we are. And so we've been thinking week by week about what it means to be made in his image. To try and get some clarity, because we live in a society in the West that's largely done away with God. But one of the knock-on implications of doing away with God is that we don't understand who we are anymore. What it means to be a human. What it means to have worth. Without God, the foundations begin to crumble and we don't have a basis for a biblical understanding of humanity, of, of what our role is, of what life is about, of how to make decisions, of how to treat people. Society is in the dark making it up, blown this way and that by different desires and thinking of the time. And it just gets messy and confusing. We've seen that week by week. Different people talking about different situations and subjects and not agreeing because they come at things from different sides. And so what we've done each time is buried into the concept of what it means to be made in God's image. And we followed a particular thread and traced it through scripture to try and work out some clarity for us and what it might look like. It's all been too brief, but we've talked about life and death issues, just to remind you. We've, we've talked about the idea of fundamental dignity, of, of our own image and identity, and how we value each other or not, or where we find our worth, whether it's in grey dots or golden stars. We've talked about gender and transgender. We've talked about the idea of isolation and loneliness and community and the fact that we're made to be relational beings. And each time, we've started off really with a couple of verses in Genesis 1. They'll be quite familiar to you now. Um, But I thought it's helpful just to start there again, because as we think about the environment this morning, part of the problem comes from one of the verses in those initial two. So let me read them again for us. Genesis 1, 
26 to 28, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And you see, the potential problem with those verses, and it's particularly in 26 and 28, is that they are very strong words. There's language of ruling, of filling, of subduing the earth, which is conceivably language of dominion and domination. That's sort of top of the food chain type stuff. And indeed, many have taken it that way. The fact that we can simply use the planet as a, as a resource to serve us and get what we want. Indeed, in years gone by, many have roundly pointed the finger at the church and have said, well, the reason we're in a mess, the reason the world is in a mess is because Christians have ruined the planet. Teaching, it doesn't matter what we do with the world. They say Christians are largely part of the problem. Let me um, read you this. There's a guy called uh, Lynn White. He was a professor at Princeton. Um, he's, he's dead now, but he, he wrote an article in the Science Journal in 1967 called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And this has been really influential. I, I think in part because it gives society the opportunity to say, well, look what the church has done and point the finger, but this still carries weight now. Let me read it to you. Sorry, the font is probably little. He said this, he said, in, in antiquity, every tree, every spring, every hill had its own genius loci, the guardian spirit. These spirits were accessible to men, but were very unlike men. Centaurs, fauns, and mermaids show their ambivalence. Before one cut a tree, mined a mountain, or dammed a brook, it was important to, pl to placate the spirit in charge of that particular situation and to keep it placated. But by destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it impossible to exploit nature in the mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. Here's the summary. Man's relationship to the soil was profoundly changed. Formerly man had been part of nature, now he was the exploiter of nature. Do you see what he says? He says, historically, there was almost a symbiotic relationship between creation and between mankind. We saw ourselves as part of the creation because of pagan beliefs, primarily, according to Lynn White. And so before you alter the environment in any way, then you seek to placate the spirits. But White says the Christian faith comes and dominates which means that the balance disappears, which means essentially the environment is bled dry, which means it's the fault of Christians that we've ruined the world. You would go on and say as well that Christians only care about things with souls. All we care about is evangelism, and therefore it doesn't really matter about the natural world, really. And there are articles that counter that. They say, well, it's no, we can't just point the finger there. We can point the fingers elsewhere. But I suspect there might be some truth in what he says. There's another danger, though, and that's going the opposite end. And that is something that's increasingly popular, and that is to go to what's called pantheism. 
Pantheism basically says that the earth, or better, the universe, is divine, is God's. God is in everything. God is all. All is God's. God is nature. Nature is God's. And so they say, of course, we should respect creation. We should care for her. We should perhaps worship her because creation is divine. Here's one for you. Come to my church. It's called nature. It's very trendy. It's very new agey. I wonder if it sits behind much of kind of Christian skepticism as well at the moment. We don't want to be equated with this sort of new agey stuff and so we, we just don't really go there when it comes to thinking about green issues or the environment. But I think pantheism is a, is a false move and there are dangerous implications. Um, again, we'll have to be very brief. But if you declare everything is one, if you declare everything is divine, if the universe is basically God and it's all collapsed then you end up with no basis for a distinction between human beings and nature. There's nothing unique or different about humanity. We end up in all kinds of mess. We, we mentioned Peter Singer last week. He, he accuses Christians and others who affirm the uniqueness of the human race as those in, who engage in speciesism. That is, we are selecting towards humans it's it's not fair he would say because we're all equal he would say and i think this is right healthy animals have more value and right to life than a handicapped child there's essentially no, no difference between a child and an animal another danger with pantheism is well that looks very nice i look at the screen and it's lovely but that's not the reality of the world, is it? Creation is broken. There's no room in pantheism for the concept of the fall. If the universe is divine, if nature expresses God, then nothing that takes place in nature is wrong, whether earthquake or famine or disease or anything. So on the one side, you've got fingers being pointed at the church saying it's the church's fault that we've ruined the world. On the other side, you've got actually... The world is God, we need to worship. What I want us to do now is just to try and take a big picture story of the Bible, looking at it through the lens of creation, if you like. That wasn't what I was expecting, that's what I was expecting. Four points we will go through, if you like, four snapshots as we think about the big picture story of the world. The first one is creation. There are lots of things we could say about creation. I'm going to say three things for now. We've already looked at Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We've seen similar things in Psalm 8 from weeks gone by. Yes, we are to, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth. Yes, we're to have dominion even over the earth. Yes, he has put us under him to rule. And they are strong verbs. But something different happens when you reach Genesis 2 somewhere. There we go. Genesis 2 and verse 5 and then verse 15 as well. Let me read them to us. Verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. 
and verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So verse 5, just notice on the way past, it's an important point for all kinds of areas of, of Christian living, actually. There'll be more on this next week, but God creates and works in such a way that human intervention is needed. Isn't that striking? He could do it himself. But his very pattern is to, to make things in such a way that humanity is involved. It is partnership, if you like. It's, it's hugely dignifying. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. It works out in all kinds of things. Your life it works out in prayer. It works out in evangelism, mission, whatever. He uses people to bring about his plans and purposes. That's just there in verse 5. Verse 15, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but the language in verse 15, I'm told, is far softer than that that we find in Genesis 1. The words, I think, in 15 are ebed and shamar, which are words that mean to serve, to cultivate, to preserve, to care for creation. So our dominion is not so much to dominate but to preserve nature, to make it productive, to keep it, to pass it on. We're to be stewards, we're to make it fruitful. And that idea of cultivation is something that I think we might have lost, but it's something that is right the way through the Old Testament. You, you would expect it in an agricultural community, but where the Lord, for example, will say in Deuteronomy 25, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Picture that concept. What's he saying as he says, don't muzzle the ox as he's treading out the grain? He's saying, don't, essentially, don't maximize profit. Isn't that interesting? Be humane to your animals. To cultivate well, you are to use ecological restraint. You are to look after your livestock. You are to have the long view in mind. You are to play the long game. Secondly, and this is probably very obvious but I think it's helpful to state and I think it's something that probably I've only really pondered this week God declares creation good before humanity arrives even before day six even before humanity is made God says this is good I like this Nature, that the world that God has made, has its own value independent of humanity. This is striking, isn't it? And that, again, is there as you unfold the pages of Scripture. You see that working out in different ways, whether in the Psalms as God creates and cares, or in the teaching of Jesus where he talks of sparrows or lilies of the field being cared for by the Creator. Creation is good before humanity turns up. It has worth and value outside of us. And the third thing is to say this is God's earth. I remember as a child, I was probably eight or nine, I remember borrowing some writing paper from my parents. Do you remember writing paper? <laughs> Extraordinary. It was posh, it was Basildon Bond or something. Um, and they, they lent it to me and said, you can use it, you can write a letter, I'm not sure who I was writing to or why, um, but they wanted it back. It was just for me to use for a time and then to return. 
Anyway, I thought it would be a good idea to, to write my name on the side of it. You know, as you have a... I kind of wrote it there. Oh, there goes my notes. Which, of course, it spoilt it completely. I was claiming it and saying mine. I knew I was being naughty. I knew it was wrong. Of course they were cross with me. But I ruined it. Well, so God gives us the earth to look after, but it's still his. And yet I wonder how much of an impact that plays in the way that we treat it, in what we do in it. Because when self is the driver, when desires rule, and God's not in the picture, we think we'll just do with it as we will. But we don't have absolute ownership over his creation. Let me read you... um, bit from Leviticus. They're in the land, Leviticus 25. I'm just going to read five or six verses out. I think they're important for this kind of idea. The Lord says, follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? Talking about Sabbath said, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth crop comes in. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Now, I don't think there is quite a direct correlation between God's people in his land, in an agricultural community, and us living on the earth now, but there are principles which are really helpful to see. The first is one... Remember the Sabbath. Don't abuse and overuse this land that the Lord has given his people. To take time off, let it recuperate. That's how you cultivate. That's how you're fruitful. But also, and this was very striking, the very last bit in verse 23, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you reside in it as foreigners and strangers. So he's made us in his image, he's put us under him, we're here to, to rule, to subdue, to cultivate, but finally it's not ours. And often we live as if it is. God is not absent from his creation now, it's not a clockwork universe that he's wound up and walked away from, he is involved now, sustaining it as we speak. It finally doesn't belong to us. So creation and then... Decreation. You see, where pantheism has no concept of the fall, of there being anything wrong, because it's all divine and all are God, the story of the Bible is very different. Creation is seen as profoundly beautiful. It shows us something of God's character and his qualities, Romans 1, but it's broken. That's initially seen in Genesis 3. We've been there week by week. We're not going to go there today. But we see descriptions of broken relationships, broken relationships between God and man, man and man, and man and creation and the world. And as the pages in the Bible turn, so these relationships between God, his people, and the world are tied together. They're linked. Because of sin, big picture creation is cursed. But because of sins, little picture, It also affects the natural environment within which humans lived. Again, it's particularly there in in the Old Covenant under the people are in the promised land. 
So their, their obedience leads to blessing in the land. Hosea 4, verse 1 to 3, you see the obedience of the people of God leads to blessing for them, and their disobedience leads to the land being cursed. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up. And all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away. Do you see that their unfaithfulness to God leads to the natural world now suffering. Well, you see it, again, this tying of, of humanity to the created order in Genesis 9 with Noah. Because of mankind's sin, so there's a flood, the archetypal picture of judgments. There's, there's decreation, chaos now rules and reigns. There's water. It, it's like Genesis 1 verse 1 again. Water covers the land. But then as was read for us, let me read again Genesis 9, verse 6 through to 13. I'll read it quickly. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God has, made, has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increasing number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So it's tying it back again to chapter 1. But then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. With every living creature that was with you, the birds, livestock, and the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It's very physical, isn't it? The covenant between not him and the human race, not him and Noah's family per se, but with all of creation, with the earth. God is committed to the earth. God is committed to saving the earth from human beings. I think there's a similar pattern as we the Bible continues, we see recreation. See, just as the fall brings about a cosmic shattering of his creation, well, so the death of Christ deals with the curse placed on all of creation. Too easily, we think about the cross and we sing about the cross as if it's just about me and God. Simply a personal thing for, for me and my forgiveness and getting right with God and him not being cross with me anymore and my sin being covered. But, but actually, we... We shrink down the effects of the cross if we leave it at that. His, his covenant is cosmic. It's all of creation stuff. Again, Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, 
and through Christ has reconciled to himself all things. All things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then verse 23, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It's a cosmic reconciliation that the gospel has achieved, that the cross has, has caused to come about. Which means, bear with me, Romans 8, all of creation is looking ahead for her renewal with the revealing of humanity being the pinnacle. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. The creation is waiting for the creator's gospel plan to be worked out, finally. Which means we will never save the planet. We will never save the planet. Because Romans 8 tells us that creation is groaning and has been since Genesis 3, but groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Remember those photos we saw on the screen with the kids' slots? Those happy, smiley mums, dot, dot, dot. And until the baby is born, until the new creation arrives, so that groaning will continue. So we will never save the planet. Because God is in charge and he's waiting for his gospel to be worked out. However bluntly I can put this, we might try reducing carbon footprints. We might try recycling for all we're worth or finding renewable sources of energy or turning off lights the whole time. But we won't save the world because fundamentally creation, because of sin, is waiting for Christ to return. Which then leads us to the new creation. You see, there's an irony as you read the literature, though. So we'll do all we can to try and save it. And we'll do all we can to eke out our resources and make it last as long as possible and think about the next generation and passing on the planet in a better state, all this kind of stuff. But the basic secular consensus for the planet is that one day it will go. We'll make it last as long as we can, but one day it will go. It is finite and it will not last forever. At some point, we will bleed it dry. We will make the sea levels rise too much. There will be a massive disaster. There will be a nuclear war. The sun will explode or something. But as you read the Bible carefully, what's strikingly different, I think, is that God is so incredibly committed to and cares for this material world that one day he will restore it and heal it. And we will live in a perfected creation forever. No, no other religion says that, as far as I can work out. For the Christian, rather than this world being temporary, where we're sort of whisked off and taken somewhere new and we'll be in a cloudy heaven and eat Philadelphia and be in 90s. The, the Bible says, I think the Bible says the world is permanent. 
God is so committed to it, he's going to heal it and put it right. Yes, it will be made new, but there will be a level of continuity with the old, between the broken old creation and the new creation. Just as, just as God takes on a material body in Christ, and his body was the same and yet different, there were, he was recognisable after the resurrection, but he was very different as well. I think there's a sense in which the physical world to come will follow that pattern. It'll be tied to the world that we have now, but it will be changed and transformed and made new. It will be different. There'll be no more disease or dying or death. The old order will have passed away, but there will be continuity. There's no other religion in the world that says God loves matter so much that he became a part of it. And he became a part of it so he could remake it and so that we could live in it forever. And so the Bible finishes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There's a continuity, a new heaven and a new earth coming down from God. Not one that we're going to be able to create or make, but when his perfect plan is finished. That's all very nice, but how do we treat the earth then? Should we recycle? Should we be walking around the place more rather than going in our cars? What does this matter? What does this mean? I take it we should be stewards. I think probably my dad was right. He was before his time in lots of ways. I think we should be stewards because we know the one who made it. And we know why he made it. And we know how much it cost him to heal it. And we know what is to come. But if you're anything like me, you think, well, is it worth it? Really? I've got limited time. Does it really matter? I was chatting to a friend this last week. He told me about a really interesting scene in a book. Um, it's related, you'll see where I'm going, but perhaps after a while. There's a little book called um, Rejoicing in Lament by a guy called Todd Billings. I've not read it, but he was recounting this scene to me. It's, it's a story about a chaplain in a children's hospital, and he's faced with this nurse who is, who is experiencing what he calls compassion burnout. She wants to help people. She wants to change the world. That's why she's gone into the job. But instead, she finds herself providing care for children, young children, with terminal illnesses. And they would go on to live for a year or two. And so she says, what good am I doing? Really? Am I changing the world? Is it worth it? And the chaplain says this. He says, think less about changing the world and more about your acts as acts of protest. Actions that declare that death and decay are worth fighting, even if at the moment they seem to have the upper hand. And so from this standpoint, the, the point of compassionate action is not to change the world. Rather, it's to be faithful and to bear witness in word and deed to a different kingdom, to the kingdom of Jesus. A kingdom in which death has been defeated and one day will be removed and brokenness and decay will finally be gone. And as our lips pray, as we did with 
Tom and with Rosie, thy kingdom come. So we're revolutionaries. We're protesting against the status quo. And as we, as we consider the environments, how and whether we engage with our environment, whether green issues are Christian things or not, we're not changing the world, per se. We're not saving the world. But maybe we're engaging in acts of protest. They fit in with Christ's work in me, his future for me. They fit in with my status as a steward of creation, as one who will one day rule perfectly over creation with Christ. My actions now show something of the reality to come, of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, of the restored reign with God that is coming, where I will reign with him, over his new creation. They think less about changing the world and perhaps more about acts of protest. Let's pray. Our Father, these are tricky things. They're topics that our world cares a lot about. And yet we want to be shaped, Lord, by you and your words. So give us clarity as we think through what your word says about these things. Give us wisdom, recognizing the, the limited resources and time that we have. And yet help us to live in a way which, which is joined up, which brings glory to you in everything we do. In your son's name we pray. Amen.